Amen? Yeah. All right. So happy Resurrection Sunday to you. And we are at that freedom, the freedom that, that they just sang about, that freedom, that thing that, that, that we've been hearing about in song all the way through, that is built and like hardwired into the work of Christ and the gospel that, that we were far from, saw, far from God because of our sin, far from him and brokenness headed to hell, and yet he intervened in that. So when we talk about my victory, we can't get to my victory without talking about his victory. And the perfect person to talk about that was Paul. Paul comes into this mix as someone who absolutely understands the reality of the victory of the resurrection. So this morning, I'm going to be looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And if you don't have a Bible for us today, I'm going to have the text on the screen for us. But to recognize that Paul's assertion is this, that Jesus, and this was the assertion of the early church. And this is what we are proclaiming today, that Jesus was in fact God, that Jesus in fact died, that Jesus in fact rose again. He is risen. He is risen. Okay. And what that afforded us was redemption and restoration and rescue. And Paul's assertion is that this, his victory actually rescued us from a couple things. The first thing that Christ's victory on the cross rescued us from is from empty religion. When we take a look at the first couple of verses of Paul's chapter in chapter 15, he's writing to this church in Corinth, and he says this, Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel. And that, that's just a fancy word for good news. The good news I preach to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this good news, by this gospel, you are saved. If you still, if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you, otherwise you believed in vain. Paul is saying, you actually, if this is what you're affirming, that Jesus was God, that Jesus died, and that he rose again, you've, put, you've placed your bet correctly. You've bet your entire life, your present, your past, and your future on the right person. You, were, you, were, you did so accurately. And for a lot of us here, that's, that's, you get that. I mean, that's your story. You actually are a Christian. You're someone who would self-identify as, I'm a follower of Jesus. At some point, I recognize that I and God and I are separated because of my actions, and I do not deserve, and I can't earn back his favor. But that Jesus did something for me, that God became man, that Jesus died on the cross, and he didn't stay dead, but he rose again, and I'm putting my trust in that. And so when we're hearing all these songs, you're singing them, even if you don't know the words. And even if you're like not a singer, you're just standing like, I mean every word that they're singing. And, you're, and that's you, because it's an echo chamber of a, of a story that is your story. But for some of you, that may not be the case. Like you may be here today and you're like, seriously, I am not here by my own volition. I'm here because I, I was promised a meal out of this. My grandma promised that she would, she would make, and she actually promised money. Cash was good, and so I'm here. And that's your story. And you're like, listen, I, I don't, this Easter thing, wonderful, but it's, it's fairy tales. It's fable for me. I don't believe that Jesus is who you all proclaim him to be. And if that's you, I want you to know that you are in the perfect place. You're in such a good place. And you're in such a good place hearing from this guy, Paul, because you would have a kindred spirit with him. Paul spent a lot of his career a skeptic of Jesus. He thought Jesus was a fraud, and he thought that Christianity was not a good thing culturally. He thought Christianity was something that should be weeded out of culture in the marketplace of ideas. And I don't care how skeptical you are of faith or of Jesus, you're not as skeptical as Paul was. Paul was so pumped on being a skeptic of Jesus that he made sure that he would imprison or kill the followers of Jesus. Now, you may be against Christianity, but you're not there yet. Paul was. 
So Paul comes into this conversation about Jesus and his resurrection as an honest skeptic who grew up with a religion that was handed to him by his parents, that he believed his whole life. But then all of a sudden, he had a collision course with Christ two or three years after the resurrection that changed everything to the point that this skeptic of Jesus all of a sudden started to question everything he grew up believing, the religion that was handed down to him by his parents, and started asking the question, is anything I believe, is anything I believe valid? Because Jesus is so reality that it makes everything else look like, is, it, is this even junk? And all of a sudden he started to understand that Jesus was actually part and parcel of everything he had believed growing up, but that he was the solution to it. But that looking at the grace of Christ, everything that he tried to do to make himself more moral and more religious was royal garbage compared to Jesus's grace. See, Paul grew up in a religion that was empty in his heart. It was all about him and what he could do and what he could accomplish. Jesus changed all that and rescued him from empty religion. But not only that, Jesus also rescued him, and if he was here today, he would say that he rescued him from a rootless faith. Because again, as we said, Jesus was not just this fad or this like, okay, this is this new idea where you, he needed to divorce himself from the past. He actually says this in the next verse, for what I received, and we'll talk about when he received it later on, but what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. This is the most important thing that I passed on to you a couple years back when I first came and hung out with you guys here in Corinth. And he starts what we look at as an early creed. It could have been a poem or a song, but it was something to help people realize and remember what Jesus did. And he says, this is it, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And the song continues on in the next couple verses. We'll get that. But, the, but this creed was an affirmation of this. You're not just believing a fad. You're not just putting your trust in the new and latest thing. In our culture, we in the Western culture, we kind of do this with faith, okay? Um, I, I asked this the Saturday service of how many people knew who Madonna was, and I was really, like, worried that people 25 and under would not know who Madonna was, but they did. They know who. So there you go, Madonna. But Madonna, she, back in the early 2000s, she started wearing a red bracelet. Do you remember what that meant? What was she into? Kabbalah, yeah. And Kabbalah is this, like, mystic, new-agey Ju Judaism type thing, and she was really into it. And all of a sudden, people looked at Madonna and the red bracelet. They're like, whoa, I want to be a part of that too. And so like people were a part of Kabbalah for like a solid two or three months. It was amazing movement, revolutionizing everyone. It was awesome. Lindsay Lohan, she um, recently said, you know, Islam really fascinates me. I think I might want to be a Muslim. And then all of a sudden, people are like, I think I want to be too. Lindsay is. New, the new atheism that we've been discussing in the past couple of uh, weeks had Sam Harris and Hitchens and Dawkins, intelligent people, brilliant guys, writing about the reason they don't believe in God. And that caused a lot of people saying, you know what, I always believed in God growing up, but I, I'm second-guessing that now. Maybe I'm a new atheist or at least a, a, a soft agnostic on it. And it's not just those things. People do the same thing with Christianity. I think I might try this. I, I have a lot of needs. This might be the solution. Paul's statement is this. Jesus his reality does not allow that. He is not a fad. He's not a tack on to an obsolete religion. He's not something just to meet your needs temporarily. He is God. And that his roots go all the way back to the beginning. And after the resurrection, Jesus actually communicated this to his disciples. The Gospel of Luke talks about this. Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus, he interpreted them to be, he interpreted them, I'm sorry, he interpreted to them the things written about himself in all the scriptures. Jesus was communicating 
to his disciples, starting with Moses. And by that, he means back to all the way to Genesis because Moses wrote Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. So going all the way back to the very beginning of our Bible and the Hebrew Bible, he said, did you see that? That was pointing to me. Did you see this? That was pointing to what I just did on the cross. Did you see this? Remember when I taught the, that one thing and you were like, I don't know what he's saying. It was right here. That it was, that's the thing that you grew up hearing about and that's what it meant. And so Jesus teaches his disciples this reality. This is not a new thing. This is a continuation thing. This is a grounded thing. It has roots. And I would even advocate, not even communicate, that this reality is not simply something that we can look and see Jesus as the fulfillment of everything the Old Testament says, because Jesus said it and because Paul says it, but Jesus is actually also the fulfillment of everything every world religion is after. Every world religion is started by people who are intelligent people who are intelligently trying to solve a problem. I'm looking at the world. I don't understand how it happened. We need to, dis to communicate a storyline that helps us communicate why this all happened. I'm looking at people. I don't get why people are so messed up. We need to develop a religion that helps us understand how and why people are messed up and what they should do to fix that. Every world religion asks these questions and tries to solve the solution. Jesus comes in and says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And yet every world religion is asking questions he answered. Within Buddhism, you have, with, Buddhism is started by Siddhartha Buddha. And Siddhartha Buddha grew up in a Hindu context, an incredibly wealthy person. And he had the opportunity to see the massive difference in the caste system and the injustice of the caste system and the evil of the caste system, where everything he desired and it brought him pleasure, he was able to enjoy. But the people who were on lower scales and lower caste system had to be subjugated to an oppressive regime of just that's your lot in life. And he said, this is wrong. And he develops a philosophy that says there is no caste system, that this is, not, this is, in fact, the cause of all the suffering I've seen growing up is the desire. My desires have caused sufferings of others, so I'm going to eliminate desire. Humanity's passions and, and what brings them pleasure causes suffering, so we're going to eliminate passion and enjoyment so that we get to a, a Zen place of, not, of being so numb that we won't be disappointed and we won't disappoint anyone else. And if Jesus was sitting with Siddhartha, he would say to him, Siddhartha, you accurately captured the reality of suffering, that people allow their desires and their pleasures to become the epicenter of their life. And whenever someone takes desires and pleasures and makes that their center, suffering does happen. But pleasure and desire are not evil. I created you with taste buds. I gave you the ability to feel and to see and to enjoy the world around you. And that's not evil. And that doesn't lead to suffering when it is submitted to me as your master. You are able to enjoy all that I've created for you. Siddhartha, the, the, you accurately assessed the problem, but you had the wrong solution. The solution was me. Within Islam, Islam started um, as a kind of a cousin to, to Judaism with a lot of the same um, context in their, in their holy book, in the Quran. And it's, it started with Muhammad, who looks at a Jewish shrine and sees in this Jewish shrine all of the, not just worship to the one true God, but all these different idols to other false gods, and it enrages him. There's only one God, not this multiplicity of gods. And so Muhammad makes it his mission to honor Allah by pursuing this this passion role to purify the religion, that there is no God but one. And I'm going to make sure that everyone understands that because God is a just God. 
And when he sees the idolatry of, our, of humanity, he is wrathful. And Jesus would sit down with Muhammad. And if we heard that conversation, we could, we could understand what it, uh, this hypothetical idea of Jesus saying to Muhammad, Muhammad, you're right that God is just, and in his justice, he is wrathful at the idolatry and people making, making other gods, fake gods, people and things, the ultimate of their life. That is accurately wrong and unjust and causes God wrath. But you've missed God. Because God in his holiness is not just just, he's also love. For God so loved the world that he sent me into it, that whoever believes in me will not die but have everlasting life. I came to bridge the gap between a holy God and the infidel. They couldn't make it on their own. It could only happen through the sacrifice that I accomplished. You were looking for the solution, Muhammad, but you missed it because you didn't find me. If you are someone who has put your trust in Jesus and his victory for your victory, you're trusting a faith that's not only found in the Bible. It's a faith that is sought after in every world religion, but only found in Jesus Christ. Now that for you might make sense, but for some others in here, you might say, yeah, still though, I, I don't care. I don't care. I mean, Christianity, I don't care if Christianity, Jesus is the solution and the king of religions. I'm not a fan of religion, period. Because it's an empty thing. It's like you have to put your faith in something that you can't see. I mean, in order to make it work, don't you have to have blind belief? I'm glad you asked. Because Jesus, actually, his victory actually rescues me from blind belief. And Paul wants us to know about it. Again, that section that we just read is up there in gray. That, and that's the beginning of the poem. That he did this and this and this according to the scriptures. This and this according to the scriptures. And, then, and that's all according to the Bible. And any skeptic will say, sure, but that's your holy book. I don't believe in your holy book. Paul's like, sweet, let's move on to verse 5. And we get there and he says, and this is fact checkable. And uh, he appeared to Cephas, who's also Peter. And then to the 12, and after that he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And last of all, and this part wasn't a part of the original creed, this is something that Paul just tacks on at the end. Then last of all, he appeared to me also, as to one abnormally born. Here's the amazing reality that we have. If you are a Christian, or if you're outside of the faith because you don't think that it's a logical thing to believe in, I believe that the best time to have a, a fact-checkable faith where you can see evidence for your faith would either be in the first century when this was written, when you could actually go and talk to the people that this happened to, like Paul is advocating for people to do, first century or the 21st century. And here's why. The 21st century is a time when scholars have more of an ability to go back and find the original documents and the original, uh, the, uh, the accounts that led from the original documents to believe something that this stuff actually happened. From the 70s on, and this is ironic, but from the 70s on, the deeper scholars have gone into ancient manuscripts and compared it to other ancient manuscripts, the more faith they have that the, resur the resurrection, not just Jesus' teachings, but the resurrection actually physically happened. We've seen since then people within academia go from being atheistic but studying the Bible to being agnostic, from agnostic to being believers. Why? Three reasons. First off, women. 
If you're a woman here today, you are a reason why skeptics believe that Jesus actually rose from the grave. And that's because the fact that, that women were the first witnesses. Women were the ones who actually um, saw Jesus, the, saw the, resurrect, the empty tomb first and had a chance to go back and communicate that to the disciples. Now, here's why that's a big deal. No matter how much you think that women are subjugated or oppressed in the 21st century, the first century was far worse. Women's testimonies were not credible. Not in the first century, not in the second century, not in the third century or fourth. That would not happen. And so if you wanted, if you were like writing something like 100 or 200 years after the fact, and you wanted to have like a credible storyline to sell your religion, what you wouldn't do is say that the people who could account for the fact that Jesus rose from the grave were first women. You would tell a better story than that, a more believable story than that, a story that people would actually want to believe in. They would not want to believe in that story. And yet, the Gospels record that as the fact. Why would they do that? That was an inconvenient truth for them. I mean, they literally like, I gotta do it because it happened, but I don't wanna. Because of the fact that it took place. Secondly, the eyewitnesses believed and died for the truth of Jesus' resurrection, not for the truth of his teachings, not for the truth that you were a friend of this guy, but his resurrection. Now, every world religion has people who die for their faith. Just because you die for your faith does not mean that your faith is true. People die for lies all the time, right? Some countries sell like their armies a, a propaganda piece and send them off into the war. And men and women die for lies. Just because someone dies for something doesn't make it true. So why is this something that causes people to rethink their skepticism? Because it wasn't based on Jesus' teaching. It was based on Jesus' resurrection that supported his teachings. The 10, 10 of the disciples died for their faith, a horrible death. And if you knew that the person that you were following was a fraud, he didn't rise from the grave, you wouldn't die for a lie. And you wouldn't allow your family to be imprisoned or your family to be killed for a lie. You would move on to a new faith. They didn't. And on top of that, we see that not only that, but the ability for this to be fact-checkable caused this explosion of the church for people to actually see that, the, 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 again, this was, the church didn't explode because of Jesus' morality or his ethical teaching. It was because it was hinge, hinged on the fact that this ethical teacher was God, that he died, and that he actually rose from the grave. And this is important, too, for us to understand why, why are we even reading 1 Corinthians? And this is why. When you look at the cross, which, which Jesus died on the cross probably around 30 A.D. Some people say 33, but it was most likely right around 30 A.D. 1 Corinthians was written in 55 A.D. Most scholars would say that um, anything in the ancient world, if you have something written between 25 and 50 years from an event, if you have one account, one written account, that's amazing. That it, in that short time period, there's something written about it. If there's two accounts of it, that's an unimpeachable thing that you could put in the history books. Skeptics who do not believe that God is God would say that there are 11 accounts of Jesus' resurrection. And on top of that, skeptics who don't believe the whole of the Bible believe in Paul because he was a scholar. They know he was a scholar. They can, they can actually fact check him. He goes and he writes 1 Corinthians in 55. And remember what we just said. He said, this is stuff that I, I talked with you about. This creed that I told you about, I talked with you about that when I first met you. When was that? It was five years earlier. Paul's first visit to Corinth. So what took place in between the cross and that? Well, first off, three years, two or three years after Jesus rose from the grave, Paul is still fighting Jesus, still pushing back on Jesus, still thinking Jesus is a fraud and Christianity is, is a bad thing. And then he meets Jesus 
on the road to Damascus. On his way to imprison men, women, and children for being Christians, he meets Jesus and everything turns around. And we know that he goes through some, he gets out of Jerusalem. He's kind of like he's, he's uh, being trained. We don't know a whole lot that takes place after that. Some people think that he goes to Arabia to uh, preach the gospel there. But we do know this, that after a couple of years, he comes back to Jerusalem to talk to the eyewitnesses, to talk to Peter, James, and John. Why? The beginning of Galatians tells us why. Because he wanted to make sure that this thing that he received from Jesus was actually fact-checkable and actual with what they knew to be accurate, the people who actually walked and talked with Jesus. Is the gospel that I'm preaching out here the same gospel that you guys have been preaching, the people who knew Jesus? Is this real? Is it legit? And in Galatians, he's communicating, it is, it was the same. And all of a sudden we see this take place. This is so important because 1 Corinthians, Paul writes this letter before Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. Before books that some people say, I don't even know if I want to believe in that. People who don't believe in the Bible, which I do, but they don't. But they believe that Paul wrote this. And the thing that's important to them is this. In 1 Corinthians, Paul includes something that he received. Where did he receive it? He received it from the eyewitnesses. That creed was something that he received five years after Jesus rose from the grave. And it was actually written and developed probably within a year of Jesus' resurrection. If your faith is in Jesus... You're not walking in blind faith. The reality of the resurrection has rescued from that. And Paul wanted us to know that. And in a historic amount of time, the very empire that designed the capital punishment method of the cross had totally flipped and worshipped the Savior. They had pinned to it. And this is a remarkable point of history that people who don't believe yet still don't understand how this took place. But the most important thing that Christ's victory rescued us from, though, is our past. Paul is very clear about this, that this is what he came to do. Our sin, which damned us to hell, which separated us from God, was the very thing that Jesus' death and resurrection accomplished. He says this, For I am the least of all the apostles, and don't even deserve to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect. Christ's resurrection, his victory has rescued me from my past. It's something that is no longer sticking to me. You see, Paul had a past, but then he had a meeting. He had a past that, that, that was all the sinful past that separated him from God, but then he had a meeting with Jesus. Have you had this meeting? Have you had that meeting where you, you surrendered your life to him? Where you turned away from, from your own ways but you, and you turned to him? Have you had that meeting? And some of you have, and that's, that's amazing. And you recognize that the good news is open to those who hated God, who were skeptical of God, who distanced themselves from God in their wickedness of their life choices. This meeting is for you, no matter who you are, no matter what your past is. It's not as bad as Paul's. Paul reminded us in another passage that God demonstrated his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, while we were still distant, while we were still stuck in our past, Christ died for us. Now, some of you, you can't take this in because it feels too good to be true. It feels nice and mythological, but I've done too much. I've been distanced from God for too long. He could not forgive. He wouldn't forgive. I have to tell you that when, when the religious elite surrounded Jesus, when he was talking with people who were marginalized because of their sin, and were like, why are you hanging out with these wicked people? Jesus started to tell them stories about how, you know how, what it's like when you, you, when you lose something that's so valuable to you and then you get that back? 
You know what it's like when you lose a son? They've walked away, and then that son comes back. That's what it's like for us. That's what it's like for the Heavenly Father to receive back one sinner. And he even says, and the angels celebrate, celebrate when one sinner turns around, when one sinner actually comes back around and turns his life or her life over to Jesus, that after all that lostness, there was redemption. There's a local story of people waiting for generations for a victory, people stuck in their lostness, hoping and praying that something would change, that the drought of failure would one day, one day turn over to a historic victory. And of course, I'm talking about the Chicago Cubs. There are a few things in our American history as long-standing a failure, certainly in the world of sports as the Chicago Cubs and those fans. And this is why if you're a Sox or a Cardinals fan, you hate Cubs fans because they're obnoxious. They're obnoxious because they're, for over 100 years, lose, 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 and they're still filling the stands and you go and you look at whatever the name of your stadium is and, and, you're, and you realize they're not, we're not filling the stands and you wonder why. It's frustrating. But those fans, waiting, waiting, waiting. And in the 10th inning of the 7th game of the World Series, Mike Montgomery steps up to the plate. He's in for Carl Edwards Jr. He pitches uh, to Michael Martinez and Martinez hits a grounder and Chris Bryant picks it up and chucks that thing over to Anthony Rizzo at first base, right? And in a second, in a second, the past wasn't erased, but it was no longer a curse. Historically, that, that decades and decades of failure was all still there, but it was no longer the loudest words spoken over this team. And those fans, fans of a generation waiting for a second had a chance to see failure and lostness turn into Victory, victory. And they went bananas. They went bananas. You were there. Again, if you're not a Cubs fan, you were there and you hated it for months. These obnoxious <laughs> Cubs fans just championing this, this success. But remember, I, I want to actually show you a mashup of different fan reactions. This was something that went all over YouTube. All these different fan reactions to the win. And if you're, if you're a Cubs fan, I don't want you to look at this as a, through a Cubs fan's eyes. I want you to look at this through the eyes of the angels who see that lostness in one person come to being redeemed. If you're, if you're a Sox fan, I want you to no longer look at this as, oh, it's cut. I want you to look at this through the eyes of the angels and the family members who've longed for redemption and a loved one, and then all of a sudden, in a second, it happens. And if you're a Cardinals fan, this is going to be really tough. <laughs> but I'm asking uh, for a miracle that you're able to see this through the lens of the angels when one person is redeemed. Take a look.
After all those years, in a second, the word that was spoken over them was transferred to victory. There's something above and beyond. The reason that that hits us, regardless of your affiliation sports-wise, is because there's something that's true in this long-awaited victory. And that is a story. That is your story if you're in Christ. If you're in Christ, you surrendered your life to Jesus you received from him forgiveness that you could not afford. And in a second, in a second, the past wasn't erased, but the curse was lifted. It was historically all still there. You know it, I know it. But it was no longer the loudest word spoken over you. And the angels rejoiced. And your family members that are in Christ and your friends that are in Christ rejoiced. My question for you today is that, because we need to know that, that what Paul finishes this whole thing off with is this. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Is his victory your victory? And if it's not, surrender to him. Surrender to him today.
and walk in that victory. I want to give you an opportunity to do that right now. Let's pray. If you are far from God, if you know that it is your sin that separates you from him, that justly separates you and pushes you off, but that God intervened through Christ and what he accomplished for you was something you could not accomplish on your own, that he in fact was God, that he in fact died for your sins and that he in fact rose from the grave. If that's a reality, that's more than a reality, but something that you will surrender to. Jesus calls us not to believe in him simply to think about a future kingdom in heaven, but to allow the kingdom reality of his work and his restoration and his rescue to infiltrate every corridor of your heart now. There's no formula, simply a surrender to the truth, the good news that Jesus did this. In your own heart, in your own words, respond to him. Turn away. Say, I'm no longer walking my own direction. I'm sorry for that. I'm, I'm surrendering that to you for forgiveness. I'm seeking you as my master and my leader to follow your lead. Restore me, save me, rescue me. And I thank you for taking the costly method and means to make that happen on the cross. In Jesus' name, amen. If you are trying to start your faith journey following Jesus, or even if you just have questions or need prayer, as soon as the service is done, we're gonna be in the fireside room. Whether you're up in the upper room or you're down here, make your way there. and We'll spend some time in praying with you. But let's go ahead and close the service with a celebration. If everyone could stand.